Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In your Week in IndyCar guest episode, this time we have one of our most frequent visitors, Mike Hull, although it's been a while for Chip Ganassi Racing's Managing Director. Been about five months since he was on the show, but before that, especially in 2017 and 2018, steady presence. Almost, uh, boy, I tell you, just all the time. So we need to up the frequency with Mr. Hull. Hope you're enjoying the intro music here, by the way. Something new for 2020. Big thank you, as always, to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA for supporting what we do. If you look at what's coming here in the conversation with Mike, it's a lot of gems. It's a lot of things to learn. Newsy, a newsy guest episode this time around. So I hope that you dig that. We also get into our favorite airline. Just, it's a frequent topic of ours. I wish I knew why, but we discuss that as well. Sports car stuff, talk about Formula E, all manner of things. So genuinely enjoyed this conversation with Mike. Not a lot to get to before we roll into it. Honestly, we have the confirmation on Monday that Ben Hanley will open the season for Dragon Speed at St. Petersburg. Not exactly sure who all is going to be in the car at the rest of the six races total they'll be doing. Expect Ben to be in for some. Might be surprised by some of the names being considered for some of the others. Could James Hinchcliffe be in the frame for something? Who knows? Could uh, Colin Brown be in the frame for an oval or two? Could be as well. So interesting developments there. Great to see Scott McLaughlin go as quickly as he did in his IndyCar testing debut. He being the DJR Team Penske Australian Supercars champion back-to-back plus the Bathurst 1000 winner. Did a catching up episode with him here in the podcast on Monday. If you haven't heard that, you might enjoy it. Scotty would definitely love to come play here. And I think based on his aptitude shown in the number three Team Penske Chevy, the one that Elio Castro Neves normally drives, the Indy GP and the Indy 500, there's real talent there to explore. Great to see on Monday as well in testing at Sebring that young Renus VK with the Ed Carpenter Racing Team was fast. Mentioned this many times on the podcast, and I'll keep mentioning it. We expect big things from Indy Lights champion Oliver Askew, who signed with the Aero McLaren SP team, who was there as well, who was second fastest, about six tenths, I think, behind Renus. We expect big things from Oliver, as you would from an Indy Lights champion. Renus. Flew a little bit under the radar last season in Indy Lights while finishing second to Oliver. For the smaller, probably not quite on the overall competitive level of Askew's Andretti Autosport team, Renus being with Hunkos Racing, considering the fact that the kid won, I think, six races, pole positions, was really pushing Oliver hard throughout the majority of the season. Just saying... We expect big things from Oliver. I don't know if the expectations are as high for Renus. That makes me believe he's going to be the big surprise this year, knowing that anything that Oliver achieves, frankly, won't be a surprise. Good to see speaking with Sage Karam as well. In Dry and Reinbold Racing's first Rotor Street Course appearance 
since Sao Paulo in 2013 with our man Oriol Servia in their Chevy-powered car. Long way to go on learning and figuring out a new aero kit for them. Just, they haven't done this. They really haven't done this for a long time. So, wasn't a shocker to see Sage and the team quite a ways off from the fast lap set by Renus and Oliver. It's not a negative, though. It's just standard part of the practice. They haven't done this for five, six years, seven years. They have to get back in rhythm. Just tons to learn. So, Sage is continuing to test today. Only car there at Sebring running. Our pal, the Retro Rebel, Olivia, she's out there on the site reporting, posting some videos on good old social media. So you might check out the Retro Rebel. She's just awesome. (laughs) Uh, I tell you, if I lived in Florida, I'm sure I'd be there as well. Uh, But since I'm not and I can't, it's great to know that she, uh, I guess, got her homework done early or something like that and uh, blasted out and is putting out some content for everyone to enjoy. Other than that, I think it's time to get going with our man, Mike Hall. And yeah, lots of stuff to cover here. The opening bit, uh, or one of the two opening bits about the engineering changes. Going to spin that out into a separate story of its own. Mike and I have been trying to connect to do that story for, I don't know, two months. So glad that we actually used the podcast to get it done. So let's roll with our man, Mike Hall, Managing Director of Chip Ganassi Racing here on your Weekend IndyCar guest episode brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, the fine folks at torontomotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA. It is a Mike Hall episode of the Weekend IndyCar. How are you, my friend? You're, uh, are you warm this morning? You getting ready to spend <laughs> dough on cars? Tell us what you're doing. Uh... Well, no, I uh, I am warm because I am in Phoenix. Uh, I was on the West Coast and uh, on your coast, uh, Marshall, for a couple of meetings with Honda, uh, which went quite well. Um, and uh, in Phoenix uh, this morning, uh, uh, going to go to Barrett Jackson for a meeting. And uh, one of the few events that I really that are sort of racing related but aren't that I really do enjoy, maybe because of the generation where I'm from. Uh, just to see all the cars um, and uh, to see the to feel the electricity of the people that are there it's it's an, it's an amazing event I really enjoy this event this is one that you would go to quite often with a mutual friend we we recently lost yeah yeah Bill Simpson and I would come to this event every year uh, have a great time uh, we came from I was probably a half a generation behind Bill uh, we spent a lot of time and uh, you know, for the last 60 days, uh, one of the things, one of the subjects on the table every time we had dinner every week was, what are we going to do at Barrett's? Who are we going to see? What kind of what kind of cars are going to be there and all the rest of that? And uh, uh, so I miss miss him, uh, miss his friendship, and uh, certainly will miss him here. Uh, I've got several texts and emails from people saying, are you going to come <laughs> because of Bill? Or are you going to come not because of Bill? Uh, and so I think because of Bill, I'm going to be here, um, and uh, we always had a great time here. Had a fun announcement here yesterday, I believe Tuesday, that our man Marcus Erickson, the newest member of the Chip Ganassi Racing IndyCar family, be filling his drink bottles with 
a, a fine chocolate drink, I believe. Uh, Husky from not only Sweden, his home country, but the, the most fun part is Husky Chocolates North America CEO Stanton Barrett. I've had more people asking, hold on. So there's a NASCAR driver, X kind of sort of IndyCar driver stuntman angle to becoming a chocolate company CEO in North America. And he's working with the team with this number eight Honda Ericsson uh, sponsorship that you want to talk about random, interesting, but random. Uh, I don't know. How did that come together? Let's start there, Mike, before we get into the real stuff. You know, I quite honestly don't exact. I don't really know exactly how it started, Marshall, but it's terrific that uh, Stan is part of it. You know, he was the godson of uh, Paul Newman. Uh, so what was in common there for a while with them was the Budweiser situation, the Budweiser uh, commercial aspect with Paul Newman and uh, what Stanton Barrett did uh, with Budweiser helping him. Uh, uh, Husky is going to... Uh, uh, work on creating a, a large, a larger presence or a presence in North America going forward in 2020. And they have an organic chocolate milk beverage. They have K cups and, uh, they actually have a, uh, uh, an organic product also. Um, and, uh, um, they, it's a hot and cold beverage. Uh, huh. so we'll, uh, we'll go forward together learning about, uh, Husky, uh, in our country. Um, and, and I think the timing is terrific by, by the mere fact that we're now aligned with Marcus as a driver for us. Well, as someone who hasn't had chocolate milk for, I think 14 months now with it, it having been a a staple in my life, man, I'm really going to have to watch myself walking by the number eight trailer this year. Cause if you see my hand, try to dip into one of the coolers, just throw something at me. No bad dog, bad yeah. So one of the topics we've been looking to get into, Mike, for a little while now, some interesting off-season changes with the Ganassi IndyCar engineering structure. We have Chris Simmons, who's been with Scott Dixon, won a number of championships with him. Before that, many championships with Dario Franchitti. Uh, reassignment there, Michael Cannon has come in. Uh, we know Kate Gundlach, uh, who's assistant engineer in the nine car. Uh, she's taking a performance engineer role at Aero McLaren SP. Why don't we talk about the the thought process or where the thought process started in the 2019 season and what you ended up with in terms of who you've moved where and how you've restructured engineering for this team going into the new season? Um. Uh- well, we're happy to talk about it. Uh, uh, you're right. Mike, Mike, Michael Cannon has uh, come to work for us. Uh, got a lot of experience, um, and uh, he's going to he's going to work with Scott on the nine car. I don't know if we take these in numerical order or not. Uh, the eight car is uh, uh, Brad is going to be Brad Goldberg, who's been with us for for a long, long time. He came to work for us as an apprentice, yeah, uh, many years ago, and uh, uh, has been on the '67 car. Uh, in IMSA for us for the last four years, uh, did a terrific job there. The uh, man who uh, who helped Charlie Kimball 
earn his, his one, one yeah, win at Mid Ohio in 2013. That's correct. And I was actually with Brad on the 67th stand uh, for four years. So um, certainly understand how far he's come as an engineer, even in the last four years. Terrific guy. So he'll be on the eight car, uh, Michael on the nine car, and Julian Robertson will be on the 10 car. Uh, so I don't know that we really re- restructured ourselves dramatically. I think that we revitalized uh, uh, with some uh, active energy with Mike Cannon coming on board. I, I think that's really the direction we're going is is just to try to create what you try to do is I found it interesting. I saw a, a statement from from uh, Roger Penske about the reorganization of the crew chiefs at NASCAR. And if you read the, the, that statement, I thought it was similar maybe to what we're doing. I don't know. But what you do is, is change is good because what it does is it energizes thinking. And that's what we're working on doing uh, within our, our group at uh, Chip Ganassi Racing. What about from a uh, race strategy standpoint, uh, any, any changes there on who is on what stand and also – uh, what about our man, Mr. Pushy Loose? Where uh, where do you expect him to uh, to fit in this upcoming season? Um, first of all, strategy wise, uh, strategy has always been a, a collaborative effort on the stand uh, because we we have an intercom which really does help a lot. So it's always a what if you know what about this, what about that as the race develops, and that's based on uh, on history, on the history of what we've done in IndyCar racing. Um, and we also take significantly uh, uh, the input from our simulation engineers and from our Honda engineers uh, in the process of making decisions about that. I'll still be on the nine stand. Chip and Barry Wands will be on the 10 stand. And Michael Guerra is going to be on the eight stand. Uh, so I think in, in uh, uh, the substance of how we do it is still the same. Um, Chris Simmons is going to work for us, uh, or continue to work for us for that matter, working on, uh, the competition aspect of us, of what we do overall, mm. um, a- as a team, uh, that's in this case, three entries, um, and, uh, we'll be on the nine stand for part of the season or part of the time. Um, and, uh, we'll just work to try to try to, to make our, product better um so we've we we without going into great detail and and i don't know that we want to talk about that frankly as a team at the moment but we've identified for ourselves areas where we feel our performance really needs a big kick Mm. for um and uh so chris has been working really really hard within the department structure at uh, our race team from the day after we came back from uh, Laguna Seca uh, in partnership with, with all the department managers as well as the people that, move, move, that work in those departments uh, to try to make ourselves better. So would that be in a, a competition manager, director-ish type role? And I ask I because I know... That, that's probably a good way to say it, yes. Because I know uh, Julian has yeah. been the... the you know, call it technical director forever. So it sounds like, um, you know, this would be an additive role um, to and support Julian the overall engineering structure. Yeah. 
And that's right. Julian remains in that role. Uh, so, uh, it, so he, all the engineer, the engineers through the system would report to him uh, through a, through a pyramiding system. Uh, that is the chassis engineers and and the people that support them. I love it. Well, thanks to Nick Fletcher and John Richter for their two questions on the personnel developments there. Uh, let's go to our pal, Jerry Suddeth. He says, Mike, I know there's a lot of talk regarding IndyCar and shared race weekends with other series. It sounds like a great idea for certain events. As someone who runs a team, what advantages and disadvantages would such a weekend have for the race teams, especially those who would be actively involved in both races? Uh, that'd be an interesting one, right? Uh, if we do have, a say, a cup and an IndyCar weekend, heck, if, if you guys get back in IMSA as well, we'll just make it a trio weekend. You guys would, I don't think anyone would sleep. <laughs> well, Jerry, I think, it's a, I, I think that's a great opportunity for fans. Uh, because that's really why this has been on the table uh, for a while. Because fans want to go to the racetrack to see racing. <laughs> and when you can have more than one kind of race uh, of a, of a, from a significant series at, simultaneously on the, on the weekend, I think it's a terrific thing for the fans. In terms of the race teams, we just know that we run at 9 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock. Uh, we race at 2 o'clock. And that's what we work to do. The only thing that, that this does really uh, that we, we have to deal with is the, uh, the interaction in the pit lane in terms of getting our equipment in and out, getting our transporters in and out, finding a suitable place to work, and being cognizant of the rubber that's on the racetrack from another series. Um, and, uh, uh, frankly, we're all fans. If, if, if we, if we share the racetrack with, uh, uh, a NASCAR, a NASCAR event, I think it's terrific that we get to see to, to race, to watch those people race. And we will, um, and the same with a sports car event, it would be no different. Um, but I, I think it's fan driven or it needs to be fan driven. I love the idea of, uh, IndyCar and Cup Weekend, we would have for at least two or three days lots of old school arguing between Firestone and Goodyear about <laughs> rubber on the track and who is better and who's messing up the other more. Uh, a couple questions, actually, Lord, we got four different questions here. Uh, one from Fernando Diaz, one from Bryson Frank, and one from Paul Kruper, uh, all related to. Team development related to the Ford sports car program. Uh, let's see. We had Fernando asking, since the disbanding of the Ford program, um, curious if there was ever any talk about trying to bring Sebastian Bourdais or James Hinchcliffe in using those personnel for a fourth car. Uh, Bryson asks, uh, what has happened to all the Ford GTs that were run by the Chip Ganassi racing team? Um, and then we also have Paul asking how successful were you, uh, in your managers at finding your sports car crew members, new positions within the team or elsewhere in the industry? Well, that's a lot, that, there's a lot of, that's a lot of question there. Uh, <laughs> let me see if I can figure out how to take those on. Um, we'll take the last one on first. Uh, we retained, uh, all but three people. Uh, from our sports car program, 
a good portion of those people that worked for us on the sports car program over the last four years were all people who had worked for us in IndyCar racing yeah. prior to that. So moving them into IndyCar positions is fairly easy. Uh, we don't have a, a sports car team. Some people think we just moved the sports car people onto the eight car uh, to run an IndyCar, and that's not really true. Uh, we moved people vocationally and strength-wise where we thought they would be best to fit with the 8, 9, and 10 cars. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, so that's that's what's happened there. Um, we had one guy that, that you know quite well, Matt Swan, that's worked for us for 20 years, whose wife got a terrific job opportunity at Ohio State. Yeah. And uh, the commute for him would have been a little difficult. Uh, <laughs> from uh, Dublin to uh, to Indianapolis on a daily basis, and I don't think I'd want to deal with those speed traps that the the Ohio tro- troopers set up every day on I seventy. Um, so uh, um, uh, he has moved away from us after twenty years. He did get his Rolex, and uh, wow, uh, um, and uh, we're really happy that uh, she got the opportunity, and he's. He's and she's she supported him for years, and so now he is supporting her. Well, no wonder and everyone of the team's so much happier going into twenty twenty. Got rid of that freaking old <laughs> anchor. Thank goodness. Yeah, yeah, right. But he'd done all kinds of different things for us, and so that's fantastic for him, and uh, we're happy for that. Um, what was the next part of that question, Marshall? Uh, next one was the cars themselves. What happened to the uh, glorious four GTS? Um. Uh, Chip Ganassi Racing and Multimatic, uh, between the, between be, because of the WEC involvement and the IMS involvement, each retain one car as part of the process. Um, one uh, car was sold earlier in the year. Um, a second car has now been sold uh, to a collector, a private collector, um, and uh, they are working now uh, to sell the rest of the cars. Um, Ford would certainly like those cars to be raced if they can be raced or if the people that buy them would like to race them. Um, and it would be great if that, if that happened. Uh, we are not presently part of any of that um, in terms of support for a racing program for any of those people that are looking at purchasing the cars. But I think eventually the market um, will find a value for those cars and they will be sold. Might be going back to Bear Jackson here sometime soon and uh, seeing what uh, yeah. one of those glorious machines might go for under the uh, under the old gavel. Uh, and the last question, there's first question from Fernando, and maybe we could expand a little bit. He was wondering about, hey, with the availability of crew and people, with uh, with quality staff often being the limitation for running more cars, is there any ever any consideration for trying to run a fourth entry for Sebastian Bourdais, James Hinchcliffe, etc. Curious, uh, not specifically on those two drivers, Mike, but if expanding back to full t- four full-time cars is an ambition, and if you think maybe adding, quote, adding one for the Indy 500 this year uh, is something that could be a possibility. You know, I know that, that, that that's a recurring question. You know, you ask it all the time, Marshall. Fans ask it. Other journalists ask the question. Uh, for us, timing has timing um, is really important um, because what can happen is if, if 
if you don't get it if you don't get it put right early on, it, it becomes a distraction to what you're trying to accomplish. Um, so for our race team, we set some date parameters on what needed to happen and nothing happened uh, within those date parameters. And it's not that we, you never say never in, in motor racing, especially for the biggest race of the year for us, which is the Indy 500. Um, and we never really talked to Sebastian because he had a deal. Yeah to race somewhere else. Um, it's disappointing to find out for all of us. It was very disappointing to find out that he did not. Um, and I thought you, you did in particular did a really good job of covering the, the circumstances there. Um, and, 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 and in terms of James, it was almost the same. Everybody thought he had a deal. Uh, so we never really seriously talked to James about anything. Um, I, I hope also in his case that, uh, he finds opportunity for himself uh, this year in uh, motorsports. And uh, if it's the Indy 500, I think that's great. Um, we don't presently have plans to run anybody else uh, to, to, to start another team to, uh, to run the Indy 500 with another car. Um, and uh, there was some discussion point about that or has been with Honda for us, uh, but not lately. I'd love to see a fourth full-time entry, but I have to admit there's something about this three car program that seems like it's the perfect size for the program right now. I don't know why I haven't put any thought into it, but there's just something that feels right about this move to three right now, at least where four feels like it might be uh, more than necessary. If that's even the right way to put it. I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, we plan to be back in sports car racing. So we have to find a balance between our entry uh, situation. That is our entry situation with IndyCar racing. And then what we would hope would be our entry car, our, our entry situation in, in sports car racing again. Um, so, we kind of have to look at the resource that we have that makes sense for us for manpower resource and so on. Um, so I think we're just, uh, you know, we've been in sports car racing for a long, long time beginning in, in, uh, 2004 and we intend to be back there. So, um, people are, are hard to find, um, and proper people are harder to find. Um, so we're kind of, moving back in the direction of, of that and uh, had a meeting, haven't had meetings recently about moving forward with sports car racing um, in this, on the same scale as what we've had in the past, um, maybe with, or probably with a different manufacturer. And uh, that's what we'll work on next. I love it. Well, let me throw in one here from uh, a new question submitter named M Pruitt. Speaking of this, 2004 start in sports cars what's it going to be like what do you think it's going to be like mike uh not this weekend but next or frankly around this time next week where you would be getting off a plane in daytona getting ready for your 16th 17th whatever consecutive rolex 24 gonna be a little weird i would guess uh not actually having a, a dog in that race 
Are you going to be watching it at home? You gonna, what are you going to be doing? It'll be strange not having you in the timing stand there. Uh, it will be a little different. Um, yeah, and we've been committed to to, uh, to racing there for, for a long, long time. Um, going to miss that. Uh, really going to miss not staying up for 24 hours. Um, <laughs> uh, but I'm going to be down there uh, at the front end of that event and probably through some of the race weekend um, because I have some meetings scheduled there about the future for our race team there. Nice. Um, and that's where seems, everybody seems to, to gather. <laughs> uh, although I really dislike having meetings on race weekends like that. But uh, that's what we're going to do. And I'll watch some of the racing. And, uh, and what I don't get to watch personally, I'll watch on television like everybody else does as a fan, um, uh, like the fans do. And, and, and I enjoy that very, very much because I like motor racing. And uh, uh, not too long in the distant future, we have a, a, a terrific event at COTA. So we'll get to see everybody firsthand for the first time. Um, and we'll go from there. Yelling at the TV. I'm going to be, you know what? You and I should just be on the phone and watch it together because it's going to be <laughs> the first time for me and forever not being there as well. So we can uh, yell at the TV. What are you doing? Let's let's go to uh, Tim Falkowitz, and I love this question. So this is for both of you. Let's start with you first, Mike. Tim says, what have you learned about racing over the years that you wish you knew when you were first starting out? <laughs> wow, that was Tim that asked that question? Yes, Tim Falkowitz. <laughs> well, Tim, uh, uh there are days when you think, man, why did I get into this sport? Um, uh, I think the fact that just the basic fact that when you're first getting in motor racing, the intimidation factor is, is, is large. Mm. Uh, but then you find out that the people that are in motor racing are, will embrace you if you embrace them. And they're just people. Um, and uh, uh, I, I said, I, I have to agree with you on that one because that's what came to mind for me as well. Yeah, I, I've never been dissatisfied getting up in the morning and, and understanding that uh, uh, there's a lot of support. And uh, uh, it's a lot of fun to be with people that enjoy what you're doing. In in terms of uh, would I have done anything different or would I have looked at finding a different way to do what I've done? I'd have to say the answer is actually no. Um, And I'm happy that I'm still part of it and uh, still accepted (laughs) by some people in the sport. (laughs) And... uh, uh, and plan to do it for a while. And so uh, at the very end, maybe we'll look back, Tim, and, and try to find find uh, ways to say, you know, would I have done it differently? Quite frankly, the answer is no. Um, and, and, and I'm happy that I've been lucky enough to been part of what I consider to be a terrific, a terrific, terrific, terrific opportunity. But like that you say you've been accepted in the sport 
Uh, I'm confident I've been tolerated in the sport, a slightly different shade on that subject. Tim, my my thoughts are, are similar. There's this interesting thing, or was this interesting thing about racing when I was coming up in it, which is, you know, after Mike, but in the 1980s as a young crew member, even into the 90s when I was a, you know, a professional and working in open wheel and got to IndyCar and all those things. The main thing that comes to mind here is I wished I asked a lot more questions because there's this, was this thing, and maybe it's the same way today, I don't know. Mike touched on it. There's a pretty heavy aspect of belonging and not wanting to stick out as someone who doesn't. And so there's a little bit of not wanting to ask too many dumb questions to possibly then be regarded as a guy or a gal who doesn't belong, who isn't talented enough, who's, you know, bit of a, a, a marauding through things and just trying to be a part of a very small and cliquish specialized club. And so you know, I can tell you that there were plenty of times where I had questions as a mechanic or an engineer or whatever, and it would have benefited me for being more humble, more confident, all of those things, and raising my hand saying, I don't know, I don't understand, but knew or felt that if I did those things, it would decrease my standing, uh, put me in a different light as, oh, well, that guy, boy, he really doesn't belong here. It's a big thing about racing is belonging and Sometimes when you don't feel like you do and you know you should ask questions, I know I'm not the only one who's probably kept his or her mouth shut to try and push through and just give the impression that you know what you're doing, that you belong, and so on. So it may be a little bit less of a hard, hardened thing to mention uh, as an item that I, I wish I knew or wish I'd done differently, Tim, but I'd definitely say that I wish on many occasions I'd just been willing to be the openly stupid guy, which folks probably regarded me as anyways, and I just didn't know it. But just keep asking those dumb questions until you're less dumb. Uh, Too many times I can think of where vanity or a variety of other concoctions in my head had me just stay silent and trying to put on airs like uh, I knew what I was doing. So that's what stood out for me. And let's go to Will McCarty, Mike, who just says, Mike's been one of the most honest, nice, and interactive team principals on the Internet, and I'd like to thank him for that. I'd also say that extends beyond the Internet. Um, Will asks, who would win in a fight, Mike, a Chip Ganassi-sized duck or 100 duck-sized Chip Ganassis? Uh, could you repeat that question? Because I need to hear that again. Yes. Will wants to know who would win in a fight, a Chip Ganassi sized duck or 100 duck sized Chip Ganassis. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, I think that that probably should be a fan question <laughs> and not a Mike Hall question. Uh, I don't know how to answer that question. Uh, that, that's, uh, uh, you stumped me there. I think, that, I think the Chip Ganassi-sized duck just stomps all the, the duck-sized Ganassis. That's my <laughs> yeah. guess. 
Uh, Lord. <laughs> this well, is... thanks for the question, Will. <laughs> I appreciate that very much. That had, that took some thought. Yeah, well, we might have to ask Chip, right? Uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, we'll we to... need to get Chip on with you, actually, Marshall. I think that, uh, and and I know Chip. That Chip is looking forward to that opportunity. Well. I figured he was smarter than that, but yeah, we, uh, I'm hoping to find some time uh, for he and I to sit down and have a good old long, I mean, he and I have had, I don't know, uh, you know, the amount of time he and I have spoken on whatever topics I can't even start to count, but uh, actual podcast stuff. Yeah, that would be fun. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Howard Bennett it says, Mike, have you ever felt the need to uh, kick off your shoes, get the sand and scorpions between your toes, let your hair down? and try a Chip Ganassi Racing Baja or Dakar race program? Um, I really would love to do that. Uh, I was bit by a scorpion once, and that was not fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's just a matter of finding the time to be able to do those things in the to afford the time the right way. I, I, I have done the Baja 500. I've done the thousand. Uh, I've done des- desert racing, although not, not, pro- not, not in the way that, that the professionals that do it really get to do it the right way and enjoy it. I like the expanse of the desert. And I like to, 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 To get to see it. Um, I, I hope someday, maybe if I have that much time left in my lifetime, that I that I am part of it and, and our team is part of it. Uh, I just, I, I think, again, it's all about timing. Another uh, thing, too, about that, Howard, is such things are awesome and would be amazing. But I think Mike's initial reaction to the question is one, maybe the same as mine. Well, that's a year and a half to two years of work before you ever get there. <laughs> like when you, Hey, you ever want to go do this? You go, yeah, that'd be great. The only problem is to do this properly, which means working with a manufacturer and sponsors and hiring all the right people and welding this and buying that and applying graphics to this and booking flight. We're a year, you know, my first thought with all these things is that'd be great, but man, it's far down the road and it means, a year and a half to two years of no sleep just to get to that thing. So um, unless you can walk into something turnkey, uh, these things just, to me, equate to, oh, man, that's going to be grueling. Uh, let's go to Nick Vance. Yeah, yeah, Marshall, I would just simply say that um, I really do enjoy all forms of motorsports, but I'd love to leave it to the professionals. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, uh, because they all do a terrific job, and I'm really envious of uh, uh, the location where they get to do those things. I, I think it would be fun to be in Mexico, or fun to be in the desert, or fun to be be part of what Alonso's doing now. Yeah. Uh, I saw some photos of that earlier today. I think it's really fantastic. It's cool when you can reach a time where you're just more or less on a uh, year-long or multi-year-long victory tour. 
you know, just, Hey, I want to go do this. All right, let's go do it. Um, that that's pretty amazing right there. Let's go to Nick Vance says, Mike, glad to see you're back on the show again. Says, what have you heard about cooling solutions and or problems that linger with the new aero screen? And he also asks, now that you have a predominantly Swedish driver lineup, have you picked up any fun Swedish phrases or swear words? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I know that there will be some that come our way um, as time goes on. <laughs> In terms of the uh, the cooling, uh, I, that seems to be some form of hot topic for for some people. But I don't think it's any really. It's 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 all about solution, isn't it, Nick? Um, and uh, I don't think it will be a topic for discussion by the time we start racing. Um, and I'm not really concerned about it, to be honest about it. Uh, I think it'll work out fine. And uh, IndyCar has worked really, really hard to have solutions for that. And uh, um, we'll have an opportunity in February at Coda to all publicly see it in full view with a full field. Um, and let, let's talk about racing instead. I just want to see the uh, pre-grid, new pre-grid practice of crew members dumping bags of ice in the lap of their drivers. That should be yeah. fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> similar-ish type topic from DZ. Says, Mike, obviously the aero screen is a significant development affecting car slash pilot performance in 2020. He says, sidebar, with the aero screen, I'm proposing we do change drivers to, quote, pilots. Uh, he says, what other significant changes to the cars or rules for this upcoming season will be challenging? Or do you think the aero screen will simply be the main focus of change? Well, that is going to be a, a, a big topic as we go forward for sure. It's, it's been, it, and it's already been one. Um, in terms of the rest of the racing, I think the things that you don't see will be the things that, uh, the, the things that we are ready for will be the will be the topics for discussion as we go forward. The racing itself appears to me uh, it'll be very competitive and uh, I'm glad that the windscreen is going to take away from uh, some of the things that we're going to work on that people won't see. <laughs> um, <laughs> If, if if I if we're if we're trying to present that in the in, in a in a great positive manner, um, I like I the really fact that it could be a diversionary there. thing. I like yeah, that diversionary tactic. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm glad that that's happening. <laughs> well, that's the other fun thing too, which has happened for a long time, which is the send one or two guys to go work on something at the opposite end of the car that you're making that change. So I could easily, if, if folks see some Ganassi crew all of a sudden just hurriedly fiddling with the aero screen, just look somewhere else on the car. You'll know that there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors going on. Let's go to uh, Ryan Terpstra. Says, Mike, what are your goals for Marcus Erickson in 2020? Um, 
you know, Marcus, we've talked to Marcus quite a bit about that, actually. And uh, um, I think maybe to close the deal is, is a one-sentence statement that's really, really important. Yeah. Um, he, he, he had a great, in my opinion, he had a great first year with uh, Sam's organization. And uh, they spent a lot of time doing the things that you do as a team to support a, a driver who has uh, a great pedigree already uh, in terms of the educational process of becoming um, uh, a real top-line IndyCar driver. And I think that uh, Sam Schmidt Motorsports, uh, Sam and Rick Peterson's group there, uh, did a terrific job of getting him where he needs to be now. We appreciate that very much, um, and we intend to build on what they've already done with him. Um, he has an enormous talent, sheer speed, and uh, we've already seen that he understands the how, how to define resource and have resource help him as a driver because he spent a lot of time in our building already. And uh, we're looking forward to the team support that it takes to get to the next level for him. And we feel that he can. Um, and so if you had to say, what do, what, what's our expectation is to get the most out of today with the resource and with teammates. And, uh, that's the mark of a good race driver. And that's the mark of a race driver to Panassi racing. Really like this next question from Matthew Pope it says, Hey guys, if a driver is injured, what are the arrangements for insurance and health care costs? He says, is this something that is uh, borne by the team when they sign the driver? Or is this a policy a driver takes up by themselves as a self-employed contractor or maybe their own business entity? He says, I've been meaning to ask this uh, pretty much since the Robert Wickens accident and tracking his inspirational recovery videos on Instagram. He says, I know insurance and coverage varies from state to state and even federally. So he finds this aspect rather intriguing. What can you share in this, Mike? And I know this isn't a specific Chip Ganassi racing question, and each team you know, handles how they work with drivers, whether they're employees, subcontractors, differently. But what can you share in the general, uh, the general things within IndyCar on if driver X gets injured, what happens from there in terms of maybe insurance and health care costs? Well, I'm not a healthcare expert, number one, um, especially with the tone of what goes on today with uh, how out of control that industry has become. Uh, but that's more a personal thing. The uh, uh, All race drivers uh, have major medical coverage. And we can only speak for Chip Ganassi Racing and, and our our position is that uh, uh, they need to have that, and they have it. Um, IndyCar itself has a major medical policy for not only race drivers, but people like myself that are in the pit lane or the paddock or uh, on the grounds at a particular event. Um, and then uh, race teams normally take over from there. Um, we're all covered by workman's compensation, including the drivers, uh, as subcontractors because they hold the they have they, they they retain those policies also themselves, and uh, 
there are companies globally that that look after race drivers for insurance, and most of them have uh, large policies or policies that uh, uh, are stepping stone policies that cover them for for anything that does happen. Um, and I can't speak for Robert Wickens in terms of what he does still retain or what he has or what Sam's team helped him with. Um, I can only speak for ours, and our guys are pretty well covered. Well, look at that. Let's go to Keith Lee. says, Mike, Chip wants to celebrate 30 years of service by giving you something special for your birthday. So he (laughs) takes you in the back of the shop and asks you to pick any race car you want from the wall of historic winning cars. Which one do you pick and why? Wow. Um, I don't know what I'd do with it to start with. Um, Oh, don't give me that. We're talking Willow Springs and just all kinds of insanity. Um, I, I, you know, the, it seems that the pad industry answer from people like myself is I'll take the next one. Um, <laughs> to, to get out of answering the question. That's why people say that. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. Don't tell me you don't want a, a, a Zanardi for, Renard for, you know, or a... for, me, for me, absolutely. It would be the first as a kid growing up, being involved in open wheel racing, uh, having this almost this fan esque look at at uh, racing before I ever was able to really get to the level where I am now. Uh, but but the very first race that we the very first Indy 500 that I was part of winning was the one with Juan and. Uh, and it's not to say that the other ones aren't equally important because they really are. The ones with Dario, the one with Scott Dixon, the the other races we've gotten to win, the large races, the sports car races, being whether they be the Daytona 24-hour race, Sebring, or Le Mans, uh, any of those, those are all equally important to me. But frankly, just winning the Indy 500 for me was was more than you can imagine. And uh, the very first one was the Montoya win. And uh, so if I had to pick a car, it would be that one. Love it. Let's go to Mark Harasim, who asks maybe the most pertinent question of the episode. Mr. Hull, for someone who has relentlessly high standards, how do you explain (laughs) your visits to Marshall's podcasts? Uh, He says, just kidding. It's awesome that you would take time to share with MP and the fans. Thanks for all you do for IndyCar, and best of luck to CGR in 2020. It's it's a fair point. You know, your reputation, yeah. it keeps getting knocked down a few pegs with every episode, but I'm not going to stop you. I mean, look. Um, <laughs> it's, the, it's the appearance fee. Yeah, well, fair. That's see. We appreciate that very much. You know, our, our people talk to your people, Marshall, and we got that appearance fee going at the very beginning. I once pay that, in stickers. We, yep. Yeah. And uh, found out... Uh, uh, how the reputation started to slide downhill. So we get a bit more money these days. See, this is, I could mark with thanks to you. I can finally reveal this whole podcast thing. I started in 2016. It's all a sham. This has all been funded by Roger Penske to try and destabilize the chip Ganassi racing organization by just souring Mike Hole's reputation and standing in the industry and just his overall, pulling down of talent 
see i tell you so all right it's been revealed uh, yeah, i'm glad I, I came yeah, clean it also included the t-shirt too i had to have the t-shirt yes yes i'm gonna get impeached for my own podcast here but that's okay um let's go to christian denevsky says mike what is your favorite aspect of calling race strategy wow uh the unknown mm. the, un- the the things that that you you know the unexpected uh at the worst possible time things and 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 then how you dig yourself out of that as quickly as possible um it's 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 that um because the unexpected the reaction to the unexpected items still allow you the opportunity to win and that's why for me it's still so much fun Let's go to Joshua Ponce. Just says, Mike, how excited are you to see the team return to three, having an extra entry to three cars on the grid this year? And is there excitement on your end for having an extra entry? I'm excited to, to be IndyCar racing still at this advanced age. The uh, <laughs> um, And having three, I think, uh, from a team dynamic is really, really uh uh, has value if it's managed correctly. Uh, because it does provide uh, an additional avenue for information. But what it really does is it provides our ability as a team to have more people on hand uh, that will will be retained and can stay with us for a long period of time. And that's what makes race teams who they are. And, you know, you hear this thing, and I think it's wrong for people to just say it's about the people. Because that's a pat answer. Mm. It's not about the people. It's about the fact that you build teams of people that provide you down the road. You don't know where you're going. You you don't know where these people are really going to go with you, but... But you get them in the corral and you work with them and, and, and they develop themselves uh, uh, to a higher level. And then that higher level works to create the, the momentum and energy that you need as a team. And uh, 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 that team concept is uh, what's so terrific about having a third entry. Let's go to Chocophile, who says, Mike. Barbara Motorsports Park was repaved in the fall. Asks, will a fresh track surface or the new arrow screen be a bigger issue in finding a good barber setup? <laughs> well, I think it will mask. Uh, anytime you have repave, it masks uh, uh, problems with the race car because you have more grip. Um, we like racetracks that have not been repaved. Uh, because it's harder to get it right. But when you have people that work together as a team with a driver that works with you, and in this case drivers and teams of people that operate as one group of people, you can create greater separation uh, for the last half or or last 25% of a tire run, a long run. And that's what multiplied by two, three, four, five, six stops uh, helps you win races. Repave does the op- has the opposite effect. Uh, 
it allows the people that don't work to get it right the ability, the opportunity to stay closer to you at the end of a run. We were very much opposed to them re repaving uh, uh, the Barber racetrack, but we understand why they did it. We just didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but that's the way it works. It's a cycle of events. So, you know, two or three years after the track ages in a bit, that separation can be created again. Um, um, but uh, uh, we'll go there with a the new aero screen, and uh, <laughs> the aero screen's going to the aero the aero screen's going to like it. There's no question about it. <laughs> and what are we're you? We're, we have a test scheduled there, actually. Uh, right after, I think it's after St. Pete. Mm. Uh, we we've saved one of our team tests uh, rather than test in January to give it up early. Uh, to go there in February, I think it's, it's I'm sorry, in March. Um, so uh, we'll we'll see about the windscreen and the repaving then. Let's go to Emerson D'Agostino. Says this might be a better question for Charlie Kimball, but Mike, do you know of any time when he was racing with CGR where he had to take an insulin shot during a race or another session? I honestly, I'm not privy to that. I don't really know because it never came up. Mm. So. I'd assume if it didn't come up. Yeah, it's, uh, he, uh, he, he was so tuned in to, he's, he's such a technical guy, let's face it. Uh, and, uh, uh, every, every small item was covered by Charlie. He, he and that included his, uh, his, uh, diabetic care. And uh, it never became an issue. It never became a problem. It never, it never was on the horizon because he had it taken care of. And, uh, no, I, I think that he's a great example for people that are type 1 diabetics. Uh, and, frankly, that includes me, uh, the type 1 diabetics mm. who, who understand that they have to stay in shape. They have to do it physically the right way. Uh, they have to create a, a, a means and method to where their system stays level and constant all the time. And, uh, that's really hard to do. And, and it's, it's really, really easy to give up on. He never did that. He got right in the middle of it and he, and he right away and he took care of it. And, uh, uh, so he never had an issue with us at any point in time in or out of the car, either one. Let's go to Nathan cook. And we, we've flirted around this. Mike, what do you anticipate being the biggest challenge in adapting to the new aero screen? Might be something that engineering team has given input on or otherwise, but what comes to mind on this, uh, the new looking glass while the drivers will be peering through? I, I don't, we don't, we haven't really had issues with, uh, with the visual uh, part of the thing. The one thing we haven't done yet is we haven't raced with it. So we don't understand, you know, things that uh, some of the, the people on uh, various social media channels have hammered us with, like, oh, how are they going to be able to see out of it? What's going to happen when it rains? You know, and all those things. So we'll have to deal with all of those things. And as race teams, we'll figure out a, an effective way to deal with all of those issues. Um, um, in terms of the setup, we'll go to all the racetracks for the very first time or a lot of the racetracks the very first time where we haven't had an opportunity to test. Firestone hasn't had had that opportunity to run with the with a weight forward situation that this car will now have. Uh, in other words, more weight on the front axle uh, for the, those that 
want to know what that actually means. That's all it is. And, uh, um, and we'll get through that in the first year of running the, the AeroScreen. Uh, the AeroScreen itself, I think the, the people that tested on Monday at Sebring, uh, I read your article, Marshall, and I, and, and I talked to several people that were there, and, um, uh, that, that provided replied a reflection on what happened down there. It wasn't a, wasn't a problem for them. It was the same as what people did when they tested there, um, in the, in the, the late, uh, late fall, uh, at Sebring. Um, so I think to me, it's a non-starter now. Mm. Uh, uh, um, let's, let's go racing with it. I like the sound of that. Let's go to, as we start to, uh, to wind down, we've got a flurry of questions and then we're done. Let's go to our pal, Craig Johnson says, gentlemen, the end of last year, MP waxed poetic about the need for another engine manufacturer in IndyCar. Why does the series stick with a specific engine displacement size? Is this a cost cutting measure? Additionally, in regards to the Delara DW12 chassis, is the engine mounting bolt pattern specific and the chassis um, for the chassis and the manufacturers whose products bolt into them? Or is there freedom on how the motor mounts to the chassis? In the last part, Craig, it is, quote, spec. So there is a specific bolt pattern atop the tub, the back of the car, the firewall itself, uh, that bulkhead. You have the mounting points to the left and the right and the top that plug into the cam covers and at the bottom connect to the uh, the good old floaty, turny, little crankcase, little, uh, little pan down there. Um, all kidding aside. Yeah. The, uh, the spinny bits on the top and the bottom, uh, what cover them and keep them protected and coated in oil. Those are the items that bolt to the back of the car. That is spec. Anybody building an engine has to use those, not their own. Interesting question, Mike on displacement. Any thoughts on this as to why or how we've gotten to a place, and I'm asking a question I know the answer to, but how we've gotten to a place where you're pretty much paint by the numbers, right? This size exactly, nothing more, nothing less. You even have to have a set amount of cylinders, angles for valves, and I mean, many, many, many things in our current and upcoming engine formula are very, very defined compared to open any thoughts on why we're still there? Um, I, I think we're not any different than they are in uh, any other form of motorsport, first of all, about how the rules and regulations are created. You know, there's an engine committee that involve, that includes uh, the current uh, suppliers, which in our case would be Honda and Chevrolet. Um, and uh, they're, they're very much part of the process as an engine committee, and they have a quarterly meeting with IndyCar, uh, with IndyCar's technical technical group um and uh i am not privy to what they talk about actually nor the agenda items that that would be turned in by either of the manufacturers or by indycar to the manufacturers in order to do that but they came up with the uh with with the the present configuration several years ago uh uh, i think the the indycar as i understand it honda and chevrolet need a minimum of 18 months to uh for a new engine at a very minimum it might be longer than that they would have to answer that question not me um and then they proceed uh 
Um, and during that period of time, we know that uh, other vendors can come in. But if you think about that in terms of the amount of time it takes to develop an engine uh, to a current formula, it's 18 months. Yeah. So if 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 uh, a new manufacturer wanted to, to say they, they wanted to commit to this situation uh, today on uh, on the 15th of January, 2020. <laughs> that's that means on the 15th of January 2022 they'd have an engine if you kind of think about it like that uh, that means the engine has to be built uh, uh, properly prepared properly run on a durability dyno an engine dyno and then put it in a car and run on a racetrack um, so that's 18 months worth of effort um, so if the question I know people always ask the question well why is there a third engine manufacturer well, IndyCars have been working deliberately hard. They've, they've been working extremely hard uh, to to provide that. And people say, okay, these guys are going to be in next year. These guys are going to be in next year and so on. Well, they, they might be, but it's not going to be next year. It's going to be two years from now. Yeah. No matter what happens, whether they choose the existing formula or they accept the one that's coming next. Um, so our hope is that they do have another one. Our hope is that uh, – uh, IndyCar has chosen the right direction for the hybrid technology that they want to introduce in uh, 2022, I think it is. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, that is enough of a incentive for another or a third partner to come in. And the second thing I would say about this, and this is a bit long-winded, I'm sorry. No. The second thing I would say about that is that, you know, I read this article, I read this stuff on the social media or somewhere I saw it the other day. Where somebody was saying, "Oh, you know, what what's going to happen with IndyCar if Honda goes to NASCAR?" Well, first of all, there's notification. They aren't just going to leave. Now that's the downside. So, in in worst case scenario, teams like Chip Ganassi Racing has have a contract, a performance contract, and a supply agreement with Honda. Our, we're not going to divulge the terms of the contract in terms of length, but it goes for a bit of time. And uh, so they would have to supply engines to us or buy us out if they were going to leave. They aren't going to leave immediately. It takes them 18 months to develop a car, an engine yeah. for another series. So kind of think about the calendar timing here, number one. And number two, I never see these questions by anybody on social media saying they, they, they always pick on Honda. Why aren't they saying, is Chevrolet going to stay? Mm. Um, you know, I know Chevrolet's already in NASCAR, but who's to say that the uh, the economic situation there might not change? And they don't they don't they race cars because they want to sell cars. That's what that's why they race cars. They develop technology and they sell cars on Monday. Um, and uh, they're not pure race teams. Uh, they're they're a, a totally different kind of organization. Uh, so I think what we need to do in, in IndyCar is two things. Number one is we need to shore up and make sure that the two engine manufacturers, the providers that we have, Chevrolet and Honda, are solid. And don't take our eye off the ball there. Don't work so hard on a third one or a fourth one or whatever that we forget about the important partners that we have. Honda and Chevrolet are important partners to, to this program going forward. When we only had one engine provider, what we were trying to do, what were they trying to do? Get a second one. Mm. They have two now. They have two. 
So let's keep these two uh, providers uh, with us. And let's work on a third one. And uh, um, a third one would be great because that takes some of the pressure financially off the first two. And in these times today, with what's going on in the automotive industry, they need some of that pressure taken off them. Um, so uh, I, th I think it's a fantastic question. I think it's a great topic um, uh, for us and for the person who, who, who asked this question. This is Craig Johnson. Craig, uh, for Craig, it's like we're, we want to race on Sunday. <laughs> and uh, you want to watch us race on Sunday. And uh, uh, let's support these people. Instead of buying a, I don't know what to say. Instead of buying a Toyota, you should probably buy a, you should probably buy a Chevrolet or a Honda. That supports the program. Maybe nobody realizes, but that's the support they need. If you're if you're an IndyCar fan, you should be doing it. Uh, I can claim to have done my part there last year. Last year, no, the end of 2018, bought a Acura. Granted. Two hundred nine thousand miles on it, um, but uh, it, it was about all I could afford. But I did. Uh, well, we were a Ford team for a long time, and I've got a bullet Mustang in the garage. Look at so, that! Uh, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with it now, um, but uh, it's a pretty nice car. <laughs> Let's go to uh, Jordan Darwin, and this question makes me happy and sad. It says Mike, how much do you fly in a year? And also asks about your favorite Southwest destinations. When not traveling for racing. And I shared a piece of news with you about our favorite airline that made me sad, but yes. Uh, I love Southwest. I, I, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm not a spokesperson for Southwest. I don't get paid by Southwest, but Southwest is amazing. Uh, it's the best. And, uh, they are an amazing airline. They, they take off and they land on time. What more could you – isn't that what you want? Um, I, was, I, I was at LAX yesterday. And uh, I'm not going to beat, um, beat on my shoulder blades here, but I'm in LAX yesterday, and I'm flying from L L.A. to Phoenix. And uh, I'm just sitting there waiting for them to call the group so you can get in line. Organized and, boarding. Uh, it's the best. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, and you look at that scrum, and you think, there's no way this is going to work. Every time you look at it, but it works. So they call my name. Please come to the gate agent. I think, oh, what, you know, what's going on here? I'm screwed. Right? I'm just trying to get to Phoenix. I go up there, and this guy says, uh, I give him my name. He says, okay. He said, uh, I just wanted to ask you a question. <laughs> I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, we want to thank you for flying last year 104 segments on Southwest Airlines. Oh, 104 segments last year on Southwest. He said, so we would, we would like to offer you uh, – a free drink, uh, internet access, or a thousand points. And I said, "Well, I said I already get the drinks, and I already get the internet access, so I'll take the points, but you don't have to give them to me." He said, "No, no, no, we want to do that." What other airline does that? Wow! <laughs> and the people, when you get on the airplane, the people are happy to be working there, and they're disappointed if they have a problem, and they. You know, they share their disappointment. So it's a terrific airline. Uh, what was the other part of that question? Uh, favorite Southwest destinations when you're not traveling for racing? Oh, uh, what 
I should. I almost. The, the, I can tell you, I've used Southwest when I've gone to the British Virgin Islands. And uh, I go from Tampa to, uh, um, to uh, San Juan. And then I got a friend that has an airplane there that gets me over to BVI's. Um, and uh, that, for me, is the favorite one because I'm not working. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Jordan, the thing that that bummed me out is since my season, <laughs> uh, if we're talking travel, uh, effectively ended uh, the latter stages of May. That means that I did not rack up the extra. If we're talking segments, I don't know, Mike, uh, uh, twenty or thirty or forty yeah. from <laughs> June through October, and so for the first time in I don't know how long. I've lost my A plus quadruple whatever status. So I think I still have preferred status or something, but now I'm going to have to pay the $8 uh, per day for internet access. And I know this is nothing, right? I'm just saying, but it's still, it's like, Hey, I've gotten all the toys. Oh no, I don't really get all the toys anymore. Cause I just uh, basically stopped flying uh, after May. So, yeah, I'm a little yeah, little grumpy tell, there, but you know, if you, I'll deal if with you it. have time, I could tell you one story about uh, Southwest. Sure. Uh, uh, I don't know when it was. A while ago, I, I got on an airplane on a Southwest airplane going somewhere, and normally I'm a pretty low number because of my status and a a one to fifteen border. So I get on the plane early, and I normally, if it's going to be over an hour flight, I'll normally go for the seat that doesn't have the seat in front of it back by the exit row. Mm. So I go to that seat like I like to sit in and I'm sitting down there and this lady comes and sits down on the on the aisle because this window's this seat's against you. I'm against the window, no seat in front of me. This woman sits down in the aisle and she's got a little bag and she pushes it under the seat. And what Southwest does is they always put a flight attendant in those exit rows so that they don't have to deal with somebody that shouldn't be in those seats for whatever reason when they get ready to do the uh, tell you what you're supposed to do with the door. So the flight attendant's stationed there, and she looks at the bag, and she looks at the lady, and she says to her, is, is that a, an animal in your bag? She said, yes, it is. And... Uh, the flight attendant says, uh, no, the lady says, yes, it's my dog, it, but it's a service animal. <laughs> so the flight attendant says, well, ma'am, um, this is an exit. You're sitting in an exit row seat, and uh, we're not meant to allow animals in the exit row seats. But my animal is trained, and, and that's why I put it in his bag because he goes under the seat so he wouldn't interfere with anybody in case we had to get out of the airplane. Now, at that point, if you were on one of the other major airlines, they would just basically say to you, get the heck out of the seat. Yeah. Right. But this, this this flight attendant says, she says, well, how old is your dog? And the lady says, my dog is three years old. Oh, that's great. And, um, so then the flight attendant says, well, here's the deal on Southwest. You have to be 15 to sit in the exit row. So here's what we need to do. And I know you said your dog was trained. 
I'm going to have to ask you to find another seat. But when your dog turns 15, and by then I'm sure your dog will be trained to open the handle on the emergency <laughs> exit bar, you can, we can probably let you sit in that seat. And she was very nice about it. She wasn't belligerent. She wasn't uh, nasty about it. She wasn't matter of fact. She didn't say our rules are this. Um, and that's the attitude of, of most all of the people on Southwest that you find. And uh, the lady was happy to get up and move. Um, and it's, it's, it's a terrific, it's a terrific way to fly. And it's inexpensive, too. <laughs> wow. Uh, it's really cool, yeah. And that's just as we wax about something we both love. Oddly, though, I don't know if you and I have ever been on the same Southwest flight. But we talk about Southwest all the time. So, you know, funny, funny. Uh, let's... Well, Marshall, I, I'd make you my companion because uh, I do have <laughs> companion status there. I lost uh, that, but, too. My wife uh, had but, companion but status, I you, tell you. My you life's would probably... have to live in Indy or I would have to live there in Oakland Yeah, uh, uh, for us to, to fly together. But it would only cost you $7.40 for the tax. See, there we go. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's wind down to our last couple of questions. Let's go to uh, Nick Dovniak, who says, Mike, with Formula E growing and making huge improvements in the last few years, how long do you think before we start to see smaller, maybe continental or domestic versions of that series? And is it something IndyCar should be concerned about or maybe look to adopt an all-electric open-wheel support series? He says the cars certainly aren't as fast or as loud as IndyCar. Um doesn't have the improved TV product, big name drivers, but there is a huge OEM support, et cetera, et cetera. He says, I'm finding myself actually watching it more than IndyCar. Um, I don't know. I think uh, uh, we were talking about this yesterday in this meeting we were in. It's so hard for all of us purists to, I don't know, it, it's so hard for us to accept the reality of what might be coming. But I think what you have to do is you have to look at where the world is going and you have to look at – it seems that the United States is always the last to adapt. We're a bunch of free spirits in America. <laughs> we want to get in our 55 Chevrolet and go 100 miles an hour down the interstate in the middle of the desert somewhere. You know, It's, it's like we're going to do that and we're just going to stop at the gas station and put more gas in it. Uh, whereas uh, people from other, country, other countries have all, already accepted the, this reality that we're coming to that uh, – uh, there, there's eventually going to be an energy, energy problem. Uh, there, there's going to be all these things that are driving us toward uh, 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 hybrid and, and electric technology, whether it's the right or wrong thing to do. I don't know. So then I think that what you then need to do is if you back that up, you need to look at where the engine, co- engine the car companies are going to be 5, 10, 15 years from now. What have we, all, what have we always done in motor racing? What we've always done is we've raced what a version of what the car companies want us to do. That's the reality of where we are today. Are we is racing in America going to change in the short term? Slightly. That is with uh, with uh, energy storage with with uh, some form of hybrid technology, and, and they'll figure that out, and that's what we're going to do next. In two years, that's what we're going to be doing in the United States in major motor racing. That's what they're going to be doing uh, globally in major motor racing. 
five years from now, 10 years from now, where is it going to be? I, I think it's going to be more in the direction of, uh, of where Formula E is. Is it going to be Formula E for big cars? Probably not. 15 years from today, is it going to be that way? It probably will be. So I think what we have to do is we have to understand the value that major race teams will do what's important for the people they represent, which will be what the car companies want us to do. Mm. The timing for that is is really. And that isn't exclusive to IndyCar, by the way. Yeah. No, it's not. It's not. Um, So do I like it personally? Is it my favorite kind of racing? No. (laughs) I would have to say that. But. The world is changing, and I think we're going to have to change with it. Um, and uh, uh, otherwise, we're going to end up being fossilized. <laughs> and uh, um, I think it's going in that direction. Then I think that question was all about uh, Formula E in the United States or, or in North America, one or the other. I know there's been talk about that for a while. I know they've explored that. Um, I think it would be a good thing if it was here. Got three questions to go. Joseph Kang, by the way, thanks for yours on whether we could see a heads-up displays cast inside the uh, the arrow screen. Definitely a possibility, but that would certainly have to wait until the next chassis is developed and the electronic package is uh, developed to suit. Uh, let's go to Anders <clears throat> Eglin, who says, I've raced in lower-spec one-make touring cars. There's always been one or maybe a few cars that are considered winning cars. You know, if you buy that particular spec chassis, you'll be a championship contender next year. Anders asks, is there such a thing within IndyCar nowadays, Mike? Say a team has one chassis they know is a beast that always goes a tenth or two quicker than the other ones. Let's say, uh, and also asks, is a brand new chassis better faster than one that is a couple of seasons old? in this era of carbon fiber tubs. So have you found such a thing to be uh, to be a thing? Yeah. It, it was a thing for a long time, Anders, and I think that's a really good question. Um, when tubs were a lot, when monocoques were a lot softer, with softer means with the material they used to manufacture them and the, the, the way they used the, 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 uh, the manufacture of bulkheads that surrounded uh, uh, that the uh, structure was a, affixed to attached to um it was a it was there was a difference between cars yes absolutely and we used to torsion test all monocoques uh even in those days to see how much difference there was and there weren't two that were the same there were not what i find fascinating now with what we've done and we just went through it uh all the monocoques that we have annually we torsion test them all and with the uh I, I would, without going into the numbers specifically, we have a couple of monocoques that have 20,000 miles on them. The stiffness is as great or greater than ones that are brand new. Wow. And that's because of the way that monocoques are manufactured today versus how it used to be. Back um, when aluminum and, uh, and, and metal, actually, back when metal was a, a standard component of construction. That's correct. And, and now with the, uh, the structure that's been affixed to the monocoque for the windscreen, for the air screen, they're actually stiffer. So 
I, I don't think I think you can go from car to car now without worrying about you can easy more easily go from car to car now without worrying about that. Do we do it? Not a lot of teams do it now. We have a spare car that's seldom used. We just concentrate on one race car. Um, and I think most major teams do that. Our team does it. I'm, I'm quite sure uh, Penske does it. Andretti does it. Um, all the other teams do the same as we all do. And if you have to roll the spare car out, we do. There are some teams that will use a second car. They use that for in the Indy 500, where they really work hard on the fit and finish of that of that car uh, for the arrow value of that at the speedway. But the, but then after Indy, that car rolls directly into the rotation. Um, and uh, uh, but there's not a preference these days like there once was. Going to go to. <clears throat> Alexei Hrushko with our penultimate question it says, Hey Marshall, it's great to hear the Cooper tires has stayed with you now for a third season. He says, when it comes time to change tires on my car, I'll definitely look for a couple of sets of Cooper tires in his native country of Ukraine. He says, now the questions for Mike Hall. Uh, this is the one where I know that we got into a little bit talking about the sports car side curious about the desire there right he's alexi is saying i'd hoped until the last moment that you guys would continue as a private effort with the fords he's asking more general question mike of the reason in the desire to remain in sports cars is it strictly a business motivation is it a passion for sports car racing that needs to be satisfied curious on what's driving as you mentioned earlier in the show this desire to remain or get back into IMSA as soon as possible? I think for us as a company, um, it has to make uh, fiscal or financial sense, and that would be no different from that to IndyCar or, or as a, a company for us or NASCAR. Uh, you know, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. <laughs> you, mm. you, have to have, you have to have a budget to, to be able to race. Uh, sports car racing uh, to be competitive today in sports car racing, whether it be in the in in any series globally, uh, we were in two series for the last four years: WEC and IMSA Bowl. And in order to be competitive in that series, you have to be able to keep up with your neighbors. Um, and uh, most of your neighbors are financially supported uh, by manufacturers, and they also are also uh, supported technically by manufacturers. You need both of those things uh, to be competitive in sports car racing unless you have an unlimited budget from a benefactor, let's face it. Um, so we've been lucky in sports car racing. We've represented uh, uh, or been uh, technically and fiscally helped by Toyota, by BMW, and then by Ford, three major companies. And it wasn't just money. It was also the technical resource they provided. And uh, uh, that is very, very important to any racing team, not just Chip Ganassi Racing. Uh, and uh, uh, it's really the same in IndyCar racing without, in, in some cases, the, the technical uh, support as deep as what Ford was for us mm. or BMW was for us or Toyota. 
uh, for us. Um, and uh, uh, they provide an awful lot of resource uh, for race teams. And, and sports car racing is different. Sports car racing is about the car. It's not about the drivers because you have multiple drivers in the car. Open wheel racing is about the driver. <laughs> so it's almost financed or supported commercially in a completely different way. Um, and uh, we want to be in bold. There's no question about that. And we will be again. Let's get to our last question here. <clears throat> Before that, I would say, Tony Mueller, thank you for sending in yours, the one about tiny angled super speedway front wings and that maybe being a thing that makes IndyCar more valuable if they are to return. I uh, don't really see anything there, my friend. Uh, let's go to Chuck Knob. Closing the show. I put this one here because I, I figured you would enjoy it. It says, Mike, you get a chance to take one race car up the hill at Goodwood. What would be your top choice and why? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> you know what? I, I would probably... I, I, I've been lucky enough to be around some really terrific race cars. Well, it's a Formula Ford racer of, of some prestige <laughs> as well. You know, Mike knows how to turn a wheel. Yeah, for me, it would be a, it would be a Formula Ford. Really? That's, what, that's how I started motor racing, really, was racing Formula Fords when I was young and dumb. Um, and uh, What model? Uh, what year? Well, probably, probably an ADF because I was part of that project. Um, um, and raced one myself for a while. Um, I just probably that for me, I'm an American. It was an American made formula Ford in, in, in a time when all the cars were, were British and, uh, we decided to do things differently. Imagine that. And, uh, uh, the construction of that, the way it was put together, the aero package on it, the, uh, the mechanical versus the aero in it. Uh, that was a great founda- foundation for me. Uh, from a technical standpoint, from a manufacturing standpoint, and from a racing standpoint. And uh, uh, that really was a springboard for me going forward. Um, So probably one of those cars. In fact, somebody called me the other day and they said, we have 007. That was the car I raced, chassis number 007. We have it. It's in a box. Do you want it? You want to buy it? I said, no. (laughs) And I probably should have said yes. Um. And I'm sure I could put that car together in the dark without without a flashlight. But uh, um, probably probably a Formula Ford like that. I love it. I love it, Mr. Holt. It's been too long since we had you on the show. I got to fix that. So we're going to do this dance a little more often, like we used to, uh, as we get into this IndyCar season that is still too far away. Thanks as always, man. We learned a lot this episode. We had some good laughs, and we got to talk about our favorite airline, Southwest. Yeah, so. we did. I'm going to work, work really hard with. Uh, I'm going to have to call Southwest and see if I can get you an A1 boarding situation. Going see, there. I uh, mean, they call you. They call you up to the counter. I don't even. I mean, I'm not even that close. But good lord. Uh, well, thanks as always, my friend. Enjoy, well, Barrett Jackson. Yeah, I'm going to be on Southwest uh, uh, back to Indy from Phoenix, so uh, <laughs> not sitting in the pointed end of the plane, probably sitting in the middle somewhere. Good man. You're looking for the balance, naturally, of course. Yeah, uh, right. All right, my friend. Well, we'll speak soon. Okay, great, Marshall. Thanks a lot.